praying for uh, our elders. We, we all just came back from Chicago pretty late night last night and full of uh, Chicago-style pizza and hot dogs and lots of junk food. And um, we had Nature Valley uh, Nutri-Grain bars in the morning, so that was probably about the only healthy thing that we ate. And, uh, and so we, we had a lot of fun together. We prayed together. Um, and it was uh, about, what, 11 of us were together. One couldn't make it. The 12th person couldn't make it. But we were so thankful just to get some time together. We do this every six months. And so we're looking forward to what God has in store for us in March. But this put, um, put something in the tank for the next six months for us. It, it just unified us as a church. Because, you know, if uh, the elders... We're leading the church, and we need to pour into one another and encourage one another and exhort one another so that you would be well taken care of. And so uh, thanks for your prayers and just for your support and encouragement. And I know the girls got together, too, the, uh, with Nicole, and um, I know that they're going to be doing the same thing uh, and just uh, encouraging one another, exhorting one another. It's so important to be together. And so I've just heard great things about what's going on in life groups. We're growing. Um, so thankful for what God's doing in this church. He's growing us deep and wide. It's been our prayer since the beginning. And this November, we're actually uh, approaching our ninth year as a church. And so it's really exciting. And then I guess you can say 10 years because one of those years where we were uh, planning and praying and, um, and strategizing with the Lord and seeing what he had in store and Lo and behold, 10 years later, we have a church, and we have a, a lot of amazing, amazing people here. And so we only have today and next week uh, in the book of Acts, and I just can't believe that this thing is actually coming to a close finally and um, one year. But it really, we started, we started this journey in saying, you know, in this chaotic time, the last 18 months, you know, there's been uh, chaos around the world and but, you know, I, I think it's, it's really given us a, a great vision for what the church should look like. You know, as we look at the Word of God and look at the book of Acts, we see a great vision for the church. And uh, in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. And the reason why we're going through that is because we, we need a vision of Jesus again. We need to look at Him and may He walk off the pages and into your heart. May He reveal Himself as good and worthy to give your life to again. And so I'm excited to go through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's shorter chapters. We'll probably take about a year and a half to go through that, uh, even though it's shorter, but just because we'll take it in small uh, sections and just really look at in depth with the words of Jesus and his actions and how that is relevant to all of our lives today. And so um, be encouraged by that, but turn your Bibles to Acts 28. Um, we are going to read about Paul's journey to Rome. It seems that this whole book is pointing to uh, the most important city in that time, Rome. I would long to get there myself as well. Um, and I just, I, I, I am so excited just to see uh, this last remaining passage of the book of Acts and, and just, I, I think this is going to be really encouraging for everyone today and just seeing this come to uh, an end. I'm actually really sad that Acts is coming to an end, honestly, if I'm completely honest. I, I like going through the chapters consecutively. Uh, it's probably where my sweet spot is. Uh, and just seeing the, the, 
the Bible come alive. There's nothing like that. And if you personally today, right now, have hunger in your heart for the Word of God, just know that that you are witnessing a miracle uh, because the world doesn't have that. Uh, And if you have a hunger, that is a miracle. But if you don't have a hunger and you want to have a hunger, just ask God. You know, he does say that anything you ask according to his will will be done. Do you think it's his will to have hunger? Absolutely. Just pray and ask. Last week we talked about just... um, you know, we, we said one of the songs, you know, I love you, God. And, and, you know, a lot of times we sing these songs and it's like, man, I don't, I don't know if I, I love you like you said in the word to love you with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And that could become a prayer for you. And again, is that the Lord's will for your life to love God with everything you have? Absolutely. Just pray that and he'll put that in your heart. He will put love in your heart for the Lord. He'll put hunger in your heart for the word. That's who he is. Amen. All right, so Acts 28 begins with Paul and 275 others arriving safely to Malta on a 14-day journey. It was a very violent uh, storm. Uh, As you remember last week, uh, they almost died. Many of them were trying to jump off ship to save themselves, and Paul got a word from the Lord that said not one would perish. Not even, uh, the ship would uh, be run to the ground. It would, it would perish itself, but not one person would perish because God had a plan for Paul for him to stand before Caesar. And so it has definitely been uh, a very rough road and journey to Rome, to say the least. And we have more to go. He's going to go through more. And the title of this message this morning is God's Blessings for Obedience. And you know, that might be easy if all the circumstances in your life are going well for you, but it's not so easy when you're going through suffering. Obedience when you're going through suffering is hard. But Jesus, he modeled that so well. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts modeled that as well. Also, uh, according to what he saw or heard, I should say, about Jesus. That Jesus modeled it well. He learned obedience through suffering, it says in Hebrews about Jesus. And Paul modeled that well, even through the book of Acts. And we'll see that this morning, that Paul's continued obedience, even in the midst of suffering. But before we get going, I just, I do want to just say that there are five different types of suffering throughout the Bible. Uh, If you want to take notes, I think this is a time to get out a pen and a paper and just write these down, because I imagine that one of us or all of us in this room have, are going through one of these types of suffering this morning. And the number one suffering, uh, or or number one in the five kinds of suffering is we suffer because of the fallen world, right? We don't know why. uh, It's not in particular to our sin or somebody doing something bad to us necessarily, but just because of original sin. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, I had mentioned that earlier in my prayer, that natural man is lost and doesn't understand the spiritual things. In other words, we are all born in sin, right? And that in uh, Psalm 51, uh, David's prayer to the Lord after his sin with Bathsheba says, our corruption was actually at the moment of conception. In Job 5, 6, and 7, it says, as as sparks fly upward. In other words, as natural as when you have a fire, sparks are flying upward, flames are going upward. As natural as that is, it is very natural for every human being to go through suffering. And we shouldn't be surprised by it, right? People will assuredly find trouble on this earth because of inherent sin. And we all have that. 
Many of you parents who are having your, you know, just babies, newborn babies, they come out sinful, right? It says that in Ephesians 2, they're, they're, they're children of wrath, actually. They're children of the devil when they first come out. I know it's, they're just so cute. So, I mean, and then, you know, and the terrible twos come, terrible threes. We get grace and twos. Know that around the corner, the threes come. And you don't have to teach your kid how to sin, right? Nobody has to do that. Nobody has to teach someone how to sin. It's just in us. It's just a matter of time before it comes out and it manifests. And so Genesis 3 speaks about that. And even God said that, you know, work and childbirth will become hard and it'll be painful because of inherent original sin. We also suffer, number two, we suffer because of our sin, because of something that we actually do and and that we occur God's loving discipline, that God is a father. It says in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, that God disciplines those he loves. He, that we are not to actually even despise that loving discipline. You know, sometimes when you sin, it's like, oh, I know it might be coming. And then you kind of hope, well, I hope it doesn't come. But you know, it's a scary thought if it doesn't. Because it actually says then that you're illegitimate sons then. But that the father, a loving father, always disciplines his kid. Not out of some weird pleasure, but out of the, the, the whole point is that, that you, you, would, you would know that you're his. And that he shapes you in the likeness of his son. And God uses these circumstances, suffering, whatever it might be. And yes, sometimes it, it, the Bible does speak about sicknesses. And it's not all the time. Someone asked me the question the other day, is if, 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 am I sick because of my sin? Well, no, because we're going to get to that in a moment. That's not always the case, is it? And that this isn't so cut and dry, but I'm going to give you five at least to work, to work with as you go through suffering to sort of filter through those five and wonder, hey, you know, and then there's the last one, which we don't know why it's unbeknownst to us, sometimes God never reveals on this side of heaven. But when we sin, we know that God's discipline is good for us. It produces righteousness and joy. It produces peace in us. Every time we discipline our kids, you know, afterwards, you know, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of, oh, I'm loved by mom and dad. I know that I know that they love me. You know, it says in Proverbs in another way, in the negative way, it says that parents that don't discipline their kids, it shows that they hate them. It uses such strong language for that. And God disciplines us because he what? He loves us. He loves us. So God uses these hard things to bring us back. Number three is we suffer because God wants to grow us in character. There's still so much in us that doesn't look like Christ, right? Philippians 1, 6, right? He's, he, he's working in us. He's, he's working out, or, or later on in Philippians, I should say, he's, he's, uh, he's working in us something that uh, he, he started from the very beginning of our salvation. And there's a seed he planted inside of us. And he's working that out. He's, uh, he's unpacking uh, the, the, the seed of Christ in us, if you will so that we look more like him every single season. So he has to bring about suffering as he brought that even about in our Lord. How much more does he have to bring that out in us? If he's so perfect, he didn't deserve any of God's discipline. But yet he brought that about in him so that through his suffering, he would learn obedience and he does the same in us. In fact, it says in Romans 5, 3 to 4, 
It says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. I can imagine Paul as he was writing the Romans. You know, he wrote Romans before he came to Rome, by the way. And so everything that you read in Romans, it'd be kind of interesting to read Romans first and then read the book of Acts and watch how Paul modeled what he preached. And so as you look at that, he's saying, look, not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And later on in the last verse, in, or after that in verse five, he says that through all this suffering, through all this perseverance, through all this character building, I know that God loves me. He goes to every shipwreck. Oh, God must love me. Because <laughs> if we know, as he said in Romans, that he works all things together for our good. Read Romans 8 in light of Acts 28. It's profound, actually, that he works all things together for my good and his purposes. He strengthens us and he brings us through trials and tribulations because he wants to produce Christ in us. Number four, we suffer because God wants to glorify Christ in us. In fact, it says in John 9 that this man suffered not because of any sin of his own or his sin of his parents, but because that God's glory would be displayed in and through him. When you go through suffering, you just realize, hey, I don't think it's sin. I mean, I know we're in a fallen world. It might be that, but you know, it, it might, you know, it, it's sometimes it's all simultaneously. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not a multiple choice thing. But as you're going through this, you realize this must just be for God's glory. It's not, it's not for me to know. I don't know why. But John 9 perfectly says that, you know, sometimes we think, especially this works not in our own lives, but as we're watching someone else suffer. We always think, what's the first thing we think of? We don't think that God's, God wants to display Christ in, in and through him or her. We think, oh, they probably sinned, right? It's human nature. It's the justice meter. Oh, there must be some problem. They must not be living it. They, they probably missed life group last week. <laughs> they forgot to give an offering. That's why they're going through that. And they, it's well-deserved, Right? No, sometimes it's not like that. It's not because of their sin. It's because God wants to display his glory in and through them. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12 says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way. We are not crushed. Just think about Paul through the last few chapters. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. How many people did he impact all the while he was suffering? So many. Higher-ups, people around him. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. And then I'll pick up here in verse 16. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but, through, but though 
our outer man is decaying, and Paul definitely felt that, and he was a young man, most likely in his 50s, 60s. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Isn't that good? In other words, God has a vision and he can see all the way into eternity. And he works all these things out. And it's not, sometimes he probably says to us in another way, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. It's my business. That's why we don't, we don't ever want to accuse God. We don't ever want to accuse one another. We don't know we're not God. It's a humble reminder every day when we see suffering around the world, isn't it? We don't know why. We don't know why what's happening in Afghanistan. There's a lot of injustices right now. Our Americans over there right now, they're suffering. I don't know. We don't know why. We, don't, we can't just say, oh, because they, they've sinned or, oh, they're unbelievers or they're believers who are in sin. I mean, all these things we're trying to figure out. You know why? Because when we try to figure out in our own reasoning, that's somehow comforting, but it's only fleeting because ultimately we're not God and we don't know. And then the great mystery in number five, we suffer because we just don't know why on this side of heaven and we'll never know why. You need a reminder? The story of Job. Do you know what's really interesting about the story of Job? He got double what he lost at at the end of Job. We talked about that before. I preached on that one time. You want to know what's even more interesting? From the beginning of Job, we get this picture as a reader of the conversation between God and Satan. But do you know what Job never, ever, ever, ever knew about the entire book, all the way from Job 1, all the way to the very end? He never knew about that conversation. I think that is so interesting. God doesn't have to tell us. Oh, he blessed Job. He definitely took, he definitely took away, he definitely gave back. I mean, God was righteous and just and good and gracious and merciful but he never let us in on that conversation in heaven. You want to know what else is interesting? Read Job 1 again. God summoned Satan to the throne room. In other words, God was in control of the entire plan from beginning to end. It wasn't, sometimes you think, oh, Satan's got, you know, it's must be, you know, the, the plane is rocking. Uh-oh, we gotta, we gotta pray away Satan. You know, it's, it's turbulence. We might go down, we gotta pray away. No, 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 no. If that plane goes down, it's God's plan. We don't know why, but he's still good, isn't he? Satan is a pawn in the hand of the Lord. We never have to be afraid. In fact, I was talking to somebody not that long ago about, uh, about just, you know, the, the trials that they're going through and, 
And uh, it was very difficult for this person. And one of the things he kept saying, I, I just kept hearing, I was listening to him, he said, well, Satan this and Satan that. And he told me, you know, I, I think when I said this, you know, Satan's probably angry at that. And I said, you know what your problem is? You're worried about Satan so much. He's a pawn. He's very dangerous. But he's a pawn. God is in total control. And when we go through suffering, we have to realize that God is in total control. He has a purpose and a plan through the whole entire thing. And where our peace comes from is when our eyes are on him. Not on his plan, but on him. Amen? All right, let's get to Acts. Acts 28. First two verses says this, and I give you that by way of introduction so you can have that in mind as we go through this first 16 verses. So when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Now, Malta was about 60 miles from Sicily, wonderful little island off the coast of Italy, where a lot of my family comes from, and a Phoenician descent, uh, Malta, and, and named it a place of refuge. Now, that was very fitting, isn't it? A lot of times we see that it's almost like a, a prophetic uh, picture of what is going to happen next. You often see that in the Old Testament as these names are very fitting to the circumstances around them, isn't it? There is no mistakes in the Bible. It's in completely infallible and inerrant, meaning that it's perfect. And every word means something. There's no wasted word in the Bible. And so they found this place of a refuge. It's very similar to Florida, actually. So many people flock here for a place of refuge and get away from the cold weather and uh, everything else. But the, they're a civilized, they were a very civilized group of people. Um, they didn't know the Lord. I mean, there were maybe a few believers on the island, but for the most part, they, uh, they were lost. Uh, they were uh, pagan. In fact, we'll see here in a moment, they... Uh, they didn't know God at all. They had a lot of superstition and whatnot, but the, they did have this. They had a reputation for hospitality. And boy, did Paul actually need that and his companions of 275 others. And I, I do want to just, it's a, kind of a little side note, but I do want to address the issue of hospitality because I think it's so important that the Bible is, uh, highlights this often, especially as leaders. It says in First uh, Timothy three two, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, and listen to this, respectable and hospitable, and able to teach. Hospitable is so important in leadership. I mean, it really models the gospel. You're opening up your home to people. In fact, the Bible even says to strangers at time. You never know who you're entertaining. It could actually be angels. Titus 1.8 says leaders must be hospitable. Romans 12.13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's for everyone, not just for leaders, but the whole church. It is practice hospitality, and some of you are so good at it. In fact, you have the gift of hospitality. But it doesn't mean that you neglect it, even if you feel like you don't have the gift. There's always little Caesars down the street, right? <laughs> Hebrews 13.2, 13, Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. 
And 1 Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Now that's key. Here's a quote here that'll help you because I think this is very fitting and very relevant for everybody who might be a little on edge when you have to host. One, one, per, one pastor says this, opening our home to others is a wonderful gift and a neglected discipline in the church, but we easily forget the whole point of hospitality. Think of it this way, good hospital dash I-T-Y, right? It's kind of models after a hospital, making your home a hospital. The idea is that friends and family and the wounded and the weary people come to your home and leave helped and refreshed. And yet too often hospitality is a nerve-wracking experience for hosts and guests alike. Instead of setting our guests at ease, we set them on edge by telling them how bad the food will be and what a mess the house is and how sorry we are for kids be- our kids' behavior. We get worked up in, a, in, crazy busy, in the crazy and the busy in all the wrong ways because we are more concerned about looking good than doing good. So instead of our encouraging those we host, we feel compelled to encourage, uh, feel compelled to encourage us with constant reassurances that everything is just fine. Opening our homes take time, but it doesn't have to take over our lives. Christian hospitality has much to do with the good relationships than the good food. There's a fine line between care and cumber. In many instances, less ado would serve better. Isn't that true? It's not about all the externals and the appearances and all that stuff. And every time we host or every time I go to somebody else, there's always help. There's always people helping afterwards and whatnot. And really, you know, the food, some of you guys are amazing cooks, which is just an icing on the cake, right? But the whole point of hospitality is to Uh, be a warm welcome to people and to welcome them in your house and share Jesus with them, to fellowship. Hospitality displays the heart of God and the gospel. It is a gospel work. You might think, hey, I'm not a very good teacher. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a good disciple maker. I'm I'm, I'm terrible at this. I I don't even know what my, My role is just invite a bunch of people over and bless them in the church. Keep Jesus at the center of it when you do it. John Piper says this, if you're afraid of hospitality, if you don't have much personal strength or personal wealth, well, good. Then you won't intimidate anybody. You will depend all the more on God's grace. You will look look all the more to the work of Christ and not your own work. And what a blessing people will get in your simple home or little apartment. It doesn't matter how big your house is. It doesn't matter how, how nice your house is. What matters is that you show kindness to the people of God in our house and those who are visiting or those who come through and perhaps even your neighbors, your lost neighbors. Just invite them in and share Jesus with them. You might be wondering, though, I think it's worth knowing, just on a theological side, I often wonder this too, and maybe you are as well, but why, why is it that unbelievers show such kindness? I mean, these were unbelievers. These weren't believers. Why is it that they do this even though they don't possess the word of God and even though they, uh, they show such kindness to these people, these strangers that have come on their island shipwrecked You know why? Because it says very clearly in Romans 2 that people are made in God's image. 
And not only that, but the moral law is written on every person's heart. You know, and sometimes, it's hard saying this, but sometimes the unbelievers have better hospitality than believers do. And that should, that should in, in a good way, shame us because we, we need to be the best at it. We need to be the best. Jesus modeled that so well. In fact, Mark 10, <clears throat> well, let me, just, let me just say this first. In verse th- and let me just say this. In verse 3, or in verse 2, the, the natives showed us extraordinary kindness for the, because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they were kindled to fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he laid them on the fire. A viper came in or out, and because of the heat, and fastened itself on Paul's hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has saved us from the sea, they've been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off in the fire, into the fire and suffered no harm. And then this is what they say, but then they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he is a God. (laughs) But you know what I find fascinating in this is that Paul, even though in the midst of suffering, he continues to serve the people around him. He continues to serve people around him, even in the midst of the suffering. And by doing that, he just simply did menial tasks. He just took wood and put it in the fire. In fact, the people were making that fire for them. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Let me help you guys. He was always willing to serve. And that's what we should do too. Mark 10, 45 says, Jesus came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life. That's what our Lord, that's who he is. And that's who we should be as well. In fact, he modeled that again in John 13 before he died. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he continually modeled humble servant leadership. George Whitfield says this, I'm tired in the Lord's work, but I'm not tired of it. I'm not tired of it. We could be tired, we could be exhausted, and many of us are, but we should never be tired of it. One pastor says this, if there's a job to be done, I always ask the busiest man in the church to take it on and make sure, and he will always make sure that the job gets done. Amen? Isn't that true? It's definitely not the lazy man. It's definitely not the one who has the most time on their hands. It's usually the most busy. They're the hardest workers. I cannot think of a harder worker than Matt Dean. I can't. Amen. I don't know where you're at. He's up there somewhere. He's hiding under the table. But you know, I, I, his father just recently passed away. He's been battling sickness for the last eight months. I, when we first moved here, we lived in his neighborhood. And uh, such a hard worker. Uh, we were probably about uh, five strong in the church. And uh, he came and he was going to another church at the time. He was living in Venezuela for a little bit with his wife. And he moved back and his father said, hey, you got to go to this church. And uh, because we met his dad, he was on a little scooter, running around the whole neighborhood. And, uh, and he said, you got to go to this church. And Matt's like, well, what church? He's like, this church, it's, uh, these, these guys, these, these new people who moved in. And uh, while you were gone in Venezuela, they moved in while you were gone. And they have a church over there. And Matt, lo and behold, he found out there's only five people in the church or so. And uh, 
And so he left his church to join ours, and I'm so thankful ever since then. I think it's literally an act of God that he did that. But even in the midst of suffering, you know, going through uh, the loss of his dad and uh, went to the funeral with him on Thursday and just got to see his part of the military and just, I don't know if you've ever been in a military funeral, it's fascinating and uh, very emotional and um, really honored his dad very well and it was very powerful. Uh, we uh, took a video of it. And, but I, I, I was listening to him as we were going out to dinner and, I, and, and he's talking about, even in the midst of all this, you know, cleaning up the house and selling the house and all this stuff, and it was a very uh, emotional, uh, traumatic way that he died at the very end there. And uh, Matt had, you know, if you know him, he, he holds his emotions together pretty well. Uh, and one of the things that he was saying at the dinner table, he was, he was talking about how, uh, you know, Zariah, his wife, would just, you know, decided to take up the carpet, and then, uh, and then, and then, and then underneath that was linoleum, and, uh, and he had to take up that, and it's just a ton of work, and the house is a mess, and Matt's there, he's putting tile in, and his, you know, his father just had passed away, and he's got a lot going on, he's leaving to Chicago the next day, and with us as the elders, and I'm thinking, this guy can work, and I'm telling you, if you ask this man to do something, he will be at your doorstep, he'll give you the shirt off his back, uh, he'll go the extra mile with you, and um, he may not be loud, but I'll tell you, he is, uh, he is truly a man of God, and so I'm super thankful, all the behind-the-scenes work that you do, Matt, and uh, just watching your life over the last 10 years, really, uh, it just, you, you never cease to amaze me that uh, you just get the job done, you love your family well, and i um, just so thankful. I don't know where you're at. Raise your hand, Matt. Where are you at? He's all the way over there. He's with his family. Hey, and, and he's delegated well because normally he'd be up there and I'm looking up there the whole time he's over there with his family. Way to go, Matt. Awesome. All right. Well, anyways, I think it, it's worth noting uh, again, just Luke's, just that we talked about last week, just the detail of that shipwreck and all the little details and, and, and for the most part, it just goes unnoticed. And, and for most of us, when we're reading through the Bible, but as, as you notice the, the fact that God rose up Luke and someone who is so detailed and you could see how important the, uh, the scriptures are and just even the little details and how accurate they are and how we can really trust God's word. Many um, scholars and, and uh, many critics throughout the, the Bible said there is, uh, there's no way that this is, they debunked the Bible based on this one premise that there were actually no poisonous snakes in Malta. Uh, today, uh, but you know Luke being a, of course that was two thousand years ago, and things could have been different then. But I think Luke would have two things to debunk that uh, notion that Luke obviously was a very skilled physician. I think he knows what a snake bite looks like, and I think he knows what a poisonous snake looks like because he had to deal with that often. And the fact that every man thought this Paul would be dead is obviously. Uh, the small little detail that they missed, those critics they miss often, they, that those, the little detail that said they thought he to be dead uh, would point to the fact that uh, it was a poisonous snake. But I love those little details in the scriptures, just to point again, those little things that uh, almost make the passage and just saying, again, I can trust God's word. I can trust it. I can land on it. Another thing to note here is that, and I think it's very important, 
the world has a false sense of justice, don't they? Just listen to your coworkers, your family members, people at school, your professors. Everybody's always trying to give the reason why things are happening around the world. In fact, these guys did. Oh, he must be a murderer. Now listen, there's truth to that, right? In fact, Amos 5.19 says this, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear, then a bear, a bear meets him. So you get away from the lion, but then the bear gets him. And not only that, then it says, or he goes home in a safe place, leans against his hand against the wall, and then the snake bites him. And what is that saying? In other words, you might escape from God's judgment in this context, but in the end, you will never escape. And these people in the book of Amos, as you know, these prophets were preaching they were, and, and these, uh, against uh, their idolatry, and, and they were being judged for that. And these guys are saying, bring on the day of the Lord. We can't wait because we are in good standing with him. He says, no, 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 you don't realize. The only reason why you got away with certain things is because of the grace of God, but you won't eventually until you repent and turn back to the Lord. So there was this notion, there was this idea in that time, and even today, that said, oh, if something bad happens to somebody, like if you were, you know, they, they just got off, you know, a shipwreck, he should have died, like, oh, that man escaped that horrendous shipwreck, ah, but justice got to him with the snake. You can't flee from the wrath of God. But of course, we know that that wasn't God's plan. He turned it on its head, and we'll see in a moment. But there were Greek stories that spoke about the wicked one escaping, but then only to face a very terrible death in the end. And they knew that. But also God's word does speak of justice to the one who murders. In fact, in Genesis, early on in Genesis, many of you guys wonder, you know, in the modern age, it's just so barbaric, it's so uh, cruel for the, to, to, uh, to, to have the death penalty today, but God instituted the death penalty all the way back in Genesis 9. And it says here, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And God takes that very seriously when you kill someone who's created in the image of God. You will pay for that. And rightfully so. Proverbs twenty-eight seventeen: a man who is laden with guilt of human blood will be a fugitive until death. Let no one support him. The Bible takes it very seriously. But of course, they had, the wrong, they, had the, they had a sense of right and wrong, and all of us do in that sense because we're made in the image of God. We all have that sense of right and wrong, but we've judged incorrectly. In fact, Jesus said this in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, Right? but judge with righteous judgment. And where do you get righteous judgment? From the Lord. From the full counsel of God. Amen? Luke 13, 1 to 4, very famous passage, passage, and we all do this. And it's actually kind of humorous when you read it because you can see yourself and your voice in it. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were uh, were worse culprits 
than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I remember the, you know, when the disciples were walking with Jesus and, and they, they had experienced ministry and they realized, oh, they were rejected. Uh, Jesus is saying, oh, should we just rain down fire on them? We'll teach them a lesson, won't we, Lord? And often we, we do that and we have a false sense of justice, a very worldly sense of justice. And as you look at the news, it's very easy uh, to, to look at the news and say, well, the, those people, they deserve that. And then you miss the hidden sin in your own heart. It's one of the most dangerous things to do is to judge incorrectly and based on appearance because you'll miss what God wants to do in your own heart. John 9, 1 through 4, we've alluded to it earlier, but I'll just read this here. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would have been born blind? Now, that's important because that was probably the, the, the dominant thought of the day. I mean, Jesus is showing us something, that this is the way people thought. Oh, they see someone with leprosy. Ah, oh, it must be their sin. You know what? It's easy to do that. If we, look, it's much harder to realize that maybe that person did nothing. And here's the scarier thought. Maybe that person did good. And it makes you think, you know what? If I keep doing good, is that what's going to happen to my life? It's much easier to think, oh, they did bad. And that's why they have that. So I'll just avoid being bad. And I'll have a good life. And that's not always the case in Jesus corrected that, of course. He says, it was neither that man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Judgment is coming. And so you better get right with him and you better put away your pride is ultimately what he was saying. And he has a plan and it's unbeknownst to man, but it is good. People are bitten by snakes and they probably panic for the most part, but Paul didn't. Of course, this heroic Paul, as we've been seeing for the last 28 chapters, he had absolute faith in the Lord, didn't he? He trusted God. It says in Acts 23, 11, but on the way, on the night immediately following after this plot to kill him, the Lord stood by his side and said, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. I mean, setback after setback after setback after setback. We could focus on the enemy. Oh, the enemy threw him a snake and the enemy threw him this and the enemy threw him this and the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. No, 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 no. When I look at this passage, you can't help but think of God's glory working through Paul and his promises are yes and amen and Paul got to Rome and he stood before Caesar as we know the end. And you know what? He didn't end up like Enoch and Elisha, did he? It would have been nice. It would have been a wonderful ending of the story, wouldn't it have been, if he just floated out of prison, so to speak, right? Wouldn't that have been awesome? Just been like, man, if, you get, if you're obedient and you love God and you just get to float out of prisons. You just get to float out of hard circumstances. That's not at all what the Bible says. In fact, we don't know much about Enoch. In fact, we just said we, we walk with God. Many walk with God. 
There's no guarantees in this life, and that's what makes it so difficult. Acts 27, 24, God's messenger said this, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. He knew he wasn't going to die in Malta. He knew God had a plan. And like Daniel's friends, as they were facing the fiery furnace, look, whether we go through this fire, whether we escape this fire, whether we jump over the fire, whether Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind, it's irrelevant. Because God is going to deliver us one day. Amen? And then they thought God, uh, then they thought Paul was a God. <laughs> you know, Paul had experience with this, right? In Acts 14, 11, remember? They thought Paul was a God and they just start getting down because they saw healing. And they're just like, oh, wise one, holy one. And Paul's like, are you kidding? And he just started preaching the gospel. And you know what? You can almost assume he did the same there. I am not a God. Many might say like, well, he didn't ever say, this time he didn't correct anybody. Scripture interprets scripture, doesn't it? Where there's confusion in one passage, there's always clarity in another. Never forget that. It shouldn't send anyone spiraling down a dark path because they have a question. Just eventually, God will reveal it somewhere else because his word is true. Amen? All right, verse seven. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, or Publix, no, Publius, who welcomed us and entered, entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was laying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. Now they most likely got this because of, uh, you know, the goat's milk, and they called it Malta fever, basically. And this was fairly common. And Paul went, to see, went in to see him. Again, he's always serving. He's always looking for an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. And we know that signs and wonders and miracles and healing all pointed to the gospel. It all had a purpose. And after he prayed, he laid hands on him and he healed him. And after this had happened, of course, just like in the days of Jesus, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and were getting cured. God had great favor on that island because of his grace. They honored us with many remarks and respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we had needed. Continually showed the hospitality and the love towards this people, and you can almost assume here in verse 11, it said, after three months, you know that Paul most likely planted a church there and all that love came because these guys understood the gospel rightly. Amen? We may not be church planters, but may it be said of us, everywhere we go, we leave a trail of gospel seeds. Amen? And then in verse 11, or let me just say one thing about healing here. Uh, what are we to do today? If you find yourself in a, a place where you're sick or you, you have to go into surgery or you have a, a, an issue, or uh, this is what it says simply in James 5, 14 to 16. If, any, um, if anyone among you is sick, then he must call 
for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him or her, anointing him with oil and the the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven of him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now I want to ask you a question. Is this guaranteed? Yes or no? No. It's the word of God. And it is true that this, if you do this, it could happen, but it's not guaranteed every single time you confess your sins to an elder, somehow God just miraculously wipes away your illness. It isn't a guarantee. It's not. Again, I think that's why life is so complicated, isn't it? But I think that's real. And I think that if you do have sin, as we said earlier, confess it to elders. Confess it to one another. It's not some, like some sort of experiment. Oh, we'll try this and we'll try that. And we'll try this and we'll just, as if the point, the point of all points is to get rid of your illness. It's to glorify God. It's to draw near to him. It's to allow him to, to make you into his image, to the likeness of Jesus. That is the point. And if you're healed as a byproduct of that, praise the Lord. But one day we'll all die and we'll meet him face to face and we'll have no more tears, no more sickness, no more pain for all of eternity. And that is his ultimate promise to all of us. Amen? All right, so after they were there for about three months, they took care of them. It says in verse 11, at the end of the three months, we set sail in the Alexandrian ships. There's probably another ship full of, uh, full of goods to, to bring to Rome and which they had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for his figurehead. And the twin brothers, uh, you might be wondering, what is that? And it was just a figurehead. It was, it was on the, uh, the front of the boat. There were two heads and uh, their names were Castor and Pollux. They were the sons of Zeus. And ironically, it's kind of funny that they were supposedly the gods who protected the sailors from shipwrecks. And of course, Paul didn't need uh, Castor and Pollux to get to Rome. He needed God. And he, I think it's interesting too that he, he didn't, uh, as sometimes maybe most Christians would probably take a chainsaw and cut the heads off and say, see, my God leads this ship. And we are now, (laughs) he didn't have to do that. He can be in the midst of idols all, all around him and realize, you know, his faith lies not in the externals, but his faith relied on the word of God. Amen. He didn't have to cause a stink, show anything. He didn't prove anything. He just, he knew that he just went through a massive shipwreck and was delivered and he was on his way to Rome. He didn't, he didn't have to worry about that. And I would imagine those who were with him, all 276 of them, probably learned something about God after spending three months with Paul, again, on that island, watching the miracles. It doesn't say here that they got saved, but perhaps Paul uh, was a moving church on that ship. Who knows? Just speculating. All right. I'm going to get Italian on you in a second here. So verse 12, it says, after we put out, uh, 
at Syracuse. That's not how you pronounce Syracuse. It's Syracuse. And that is in Sicily, the wonderful island of Sicily that I long to go. It's roughly about 100 miles from Malta at that point. Is it more in the, uh, they were uh, around the, the, the southern, southeast end of Malta. So about took about 100 miles on the ship to get there in Syracuse. And at the top, or on one, one of the stops, he, uh, there he went to Regium. Uh, and then a day later, the south wind sprung up, and then he went to Puteoli. And basically there, uh, uh, which is Naples, and I, and I have been to Naples and the Amalfi Coast as you go south through right where Paul was, right around there, uh, near Pompeii, where the great volcano Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed that whole area. You should look it up. It's fascinating history, actually. But Paul was there, and then seven days later, he had so much trust at this point. He said, look, if he could survive a shipwreck and go to Malta, Paul's not going to run away, so I'll let him go. Uh, most likely, he probably visited other churches, other believers during those seven days. And in verse 14, there we found some brethren. Seven days later, they came to Rome. And I love that in verse 14. It was like some sort of, just an, an uneventful, I, it, it, it just, it seemed like this whole thing is pointing to Rome and all the absolute chaos that he just went to. And then, and then Luke just says, ah, and we finally arrived to Rome. Like, what? <laughs> That's actually a big deal. And I'll show you why it's such a big deal uh, in a second here that Paul, roamed, uh, Paul longed to go to Rome and he wrote Ro- the Romans and he just kept saying over and over and over, and, uh, and when one in Acts 19, 21, and now after these things we're finished, Paul suppo- purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. Romans 1, 11, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that I may be established, that you may be established. Romans 1, 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, you who are in Rome, Romans fifteen twenty three now, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have ha- I have had for many years a longing to come to you, Luke finally says, "We're in Rome." And I'm telling you that is more profound than you know. Have you ever? Maybe you haven't dreamed of going to a place and maybe on vacation or something like that. Of course, you know, you dream, you're dreaming with God. I'd love to go there. I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that. But God honored Paul because of his obedience. And, you know, so many times that it doesn't always work out that way, does it? That, you know, we have this desire and, and, and we're believing that God's going to do it. So we're just obeying, obeying, obeying. You know, and sometimes God, he doesn't have to give that to us. And many of us will die with longings in our heart. But then as we get on the other side of this earth, we realize they're all fulfilled. And that's the wonderful, amazing thing about heaven, isn't it? But Paul was blessed because of obedience. And there is a scriptural principle in that. One of my favorite verses in college, and I had it as a little sticky note everywhere. And it's just Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What a wonderful promise. And Paul knew that. I want to go to Rome. And of course he went to Rome, not for his own purposes. I don't think he just wanted to see Mount Vesuvius and the wonderful Italians and the food and all the other stuff. But he wanted to go there because he loved the people. And not only that, he couldn't stop at Italy, right? What else did he say? He's like, after Italy, I'm going to Spain. 
And he probably would have never stopped there. He would have definitely beat Columbus at it. Come to America, right? Psalm 145, verse 19, he, would, he will fulfill the desires of those who what? Fear him. And he will also hear their cry and will save them. Proverbs 10, 24, what the wicked fears will come upon him, but the, right, the desire of the righteous will be granted. God longs to bless his people, but it doesn't, in one sense, it's all God's grace, right? I mean, we do evil, we, we've messed up, and God's grace showers us, and it's wonderful, and we don't deserve it. But yet there is this principle in Scripture, too, that says when we obey God, and we have these desires in our heart, and they're godly, and they're right, and the motives are right, and they're for his glory, he will fulfill them in and through us. You know what that does? It produces an incredible amount of joy. Can you imagine as Paul finally arrived, the big breath that he took, he's like, we're here. But the work's not done. There's so much more work to be done. And God gives us these little checkpoints, these little points in our life where it's like, man, wow, we got to experience that. And it was an answer to prayer. Oh, but there's so much more. There's so much more. He continues to put his desires in us and empowers us uh, for obedience. And then also not only puts those desires in us, and then he fulfills those desires. His promises are yes and amen. And not only that, and then you see here in, in verse 15, this is also amazing to see what a, a blessed man looks like in the scriptures. That we all long to have this kind of life and we may not want to suffer for it. But in the brethren, when they heard about us, they came there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns, which are about 40 to 30 miles respectively from Rome. They came from a long distance, in other words, Luke wants you to know, to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. You know what a blessed man looks like? Someone who has a lot of friends. He had a lot of friends. Why? Because he served them. He wrote to them, said, I long to see you. And these friends were like, oh, God's promises are yes and amen. We're not guaranteed to see Paul, but look, he's here. And they probably heard him kind of make his way up. The word traveled around and they met him. And, and not only that, and then in verse 16, the favor continued. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself and with the soldier who was guarding him. That was such favor. It didn't say that he threw him in a cell and they beat him. That could have been. And that happened before, as you saw many times throughout the book of Acts. But in this case, they basically gave him house arrest, if you will. And Paul found much favor with God. He protected him in Caesarea from a plot to kill him. On the ship, he protected him and sent him an angel to comfort him. He was well provided for in Malta, protected him from the poison from the snake bite. And many friends came to love on him during the short journey from southern Italy to Rome. That's what it looks like to be blessed. And God's saying through this passage, I believe that, you know, it is the grace of God. Do not miss that. 
It's absolutely the grace of God. But he's also showing us another principle that it is absolutely possible to be blessed and to find favor in the midst of suffering. That Paul lived well his whole life. He lived well. Some of us live well and we look back and it's because of circumstance. We're constantly counting our blessings and making sure, keeping score with God, so to speak. And the reality is, it's because of God's grace. But also, there's a principle in Scripture that when we obey Him faithfully, He does give us the desires of our heart. And there is an earthly blessing. And there is joy on this planet. And we could experience those things. In fact, in Genesis 39, 21 to 23, it says this, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him what? Prosper. I can't help but think of my friends, our friends, our family friends who were in Afghanistan. And we got an email, uh, you know, for the last month, the Taliban was obviously, as you see in the news, they were taking over little by little. You could see a map and it was kind of, uh, it was lighting up in pink. It was all white, little sections of Afghanistan. It was lighting up in pink for the last month. And you could see how the Taliban was hiding in caves. They came out of nowhere and they were taking over the country as you read in the news. But here's something you don't read. In the midst of all the chaos and all the worry and all the fear, our friends who have been there working there for so many years faithfully, sharing the gospel, loving people, kind of covertly in the country under a business. But really they were there for one reason, to preach the gospel. And many people maybe didn't necessarily all come to Christ, but they were watching. The seeds were planted. There's hope in that country. And that uh, few days before everything happened, they were saying, hey, look, we're hearing reports. And though we don't want to leave, and we've been here for so many years, we have so many friends, we're seeing our time potentially come to an end. And that morning, before I even heard the news that the Americans left in the middle of the night to leave that country in an absolute disaster, I got the email in the morning and it said we got out in time. We got out in time. In the midst of trials and tribulations, there are times when God will make that person or that family or those people prosper. And there are other times, as we know, there will be many martyrs in that country. And on one hand, you get this amazing email and you say, wow, God, that is so awesome how you got that precious family out in the nick of time. But yet, at the same time, God, you're still good as the Taliban goes door to door and they might actually kill Christians. But we know that both glorify God. And it does say, interestingly, that the blood of the martyrs 
is the seat of the church. And even though you, you might watch whatever CNN might have to say and whatever Fox News has to say, but we also have another news station. It's right here. We can read this and we can know that the church is thriving there. It's thriving there. You'll never hear that in the news. That's why we need to be in the word of God every day. Because that ultimately is what gives us hope. And we see that with Paul. We can be so encouraged with a few things here as I close. We could trust God to lead our lives, right? We could trust God to lead this church, whether it's in the midst of whatever circumstance might come our way. We want God's blessing on our lives, don't we, church? We should covet that. We should want that. This should just be our goal. We want God's blessing on our lives. We want that more than anything else. We may not understand all the circumstances that happen. We don't understand all the news. We don't understand everything that goes on in life. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what What we should want as believers is we want God's blessing. We want God's blessing. We want God's favor. We, and also, may we continue as a church to continue to obey God no matter what comes our way. R.C. Sproul says this as I'll close. At long last, Paul arrived at his destination, and he arrived there by the providence of God. What can we learn from this? All who are in Christ have a manifest destiny and God will bring each one of us to it. As Christians, we do not believe that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of blind fate or the furies of, or, or, of furies or arbitrary promiscuous deities, false gods, superstitions. This is our father's world. And we are his children. He has appointed us, appoint every one of us for this final point, and he will bring us there in the midst of the storm, the shipwreck, the beatings, the pain, the imprisonments. When we start to lose courage, when we give up hope, and we think that the invisible God has let us go, we need only to remember his servant Paul, who took courage when his feet landed safely on Roman soil. That is the God we worship, who has each one of his people in the hollow of his hand. And he will, he, like he said in the scriptures, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? It's so good. I was tempted to read Romans, part of Romans 8, and I, I'm succumbing to that temptation. And this is the final I always say that. I probably said that three times, right? Right, Kevin? Am I up to three? All right. Uh, I just think this is so good because I, I think what is what I, I I think what is important in this, guys, is that let's make sure that we back up our words with our actions. Because Paul wrote this amazing book to the Romans, and then you got to see this last part of the book of Acts after the book was written, or after the letter was written to them, that he truly lived out the word of God. And may that be said of us. May that be said of this church. That these guys don't just blow smoke. They don't just read the Bible and talk about the word of God. They live it. They back up their lives 
They back up their words with their lives. The word of God is made manifest through the way they live. And I just want to read verse, in verse 27 here. It's just so fitting. And I just think as you watch Paul's life, as we read this last one next week, but as you look at the last, really the last 21 chap, or last uh, few chapters from 21 to 28, it says here in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you think the Holy Spirit was doing that for Paul? Absolutely. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. God will complete the work that he started in every single believer in this room. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Snakebite? Festus? Agrippa? Felix? The islanders of Malta? The Roman soldiers? The centurion on the boat? A shipwreck? And ultimately, Caesar? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over to us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. It didn't end in death. There was an empty tomb. Who is at the right hand of God who will also intercede. Not only did they have the Holy Spirit interceding and praying, but also Jesus Christ himself, as it says in Hebrews also. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? When Paul was on that ship, when he finally got to Rome, when things got tough again and again and again, this is what he probably remembered with his own pen. Will tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, peril or sword? Will that separate me? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything create any other thing created will able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We win in the end. We lose here. We started this series and this message with saying just that. We lose here. We will lose earthly battles, so to speak. We will look foolish for his sake. But in the end, we win. We win. 
And you may not understand that now. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know things will get worse, right? We read that in Revelation. We read that, but Jesus himself prepares us for this. That when you stand before the governors, when you stand before leaders, he will put the, the words of the Holy Spirit in your mouth and you have nothing to be concerned with because nothing will separate you from the love of God. He has you in the palm of his hands and he says, like he said, he said in Hebrews 13, he said this to Paul, he said this to Jesus, even in the midst of his suffering. And he says this to many believers and he even looked at Stephen as he got up from his throne, he looked right at Stephen I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Paul was blessed because he kept trusting God's word. And that's who we are as a people, right? Let's just stand to our feet and let's pray that we would be faithful to the end, even in the midst of absolute chaos all around us. We're not God, and God will continually show us that we're not, right? But it's actually a wonderful, comforting thing that he holds the whole world in his hand. It's like those children's songs often come back when things get hard, right? He holds the whole world in his hands, and Jesus loves me, this I know, for the what? For the Bible tells us so. This is a church, listen, This is a church that loves Jesus and we love the word of God. People might accuse us over the next so many years, perhaps today, tomorrow, of worshiping the Bible. But like that children's song, how do we know Jesus? How do we know we're loved? How do we know our purpose? How do we know how we'll overcome suffering? Through the what? The Bible. We don't worship the Bible here. We read the Bible. We honor the Bible. And we realize the Bible has all truth. And when we do, we will become like him because we'll actually know him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for 